You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. everyone, welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 37. Uh, this past week I was in Ottawa speaking to the government subcommittee on concussion in sport in Canada and uh, I just kind of wanted to use this time to bring people up to speed as to what that government subcommittee is all about, kind of what we've learned along the way uh, and also kind of what our recommendations are based on kind of the state of the literature at this point in time as well as some of the other points that have been brought up by some of the other witnesses that also appeared before that committee. Just for a summary, uh, the announcement was made on October 4th that the Government of Canada would be um, uh, setting up a subcommittee to study uh, sports-related concussions in Canada. And what they meant by that was they were going to call witnesses to come in and answer questions and provide statements on uh, on concussion in sport. And based on what they find during that, they would uh, issue some recommendations for improving um, concussions overall in in youth sport in Canada. So the purpose of the committee basically is a fact-finding mission. How big is the problem? Who does it affect? Um, how many people does it affect? What are the challenges uh, that patients go through in finding care? What are the challenges that coaches and trainers might have in providing um, appropriate recommendations for their athletes? Uh, what are some of the treatment options for concussions? Uh, how can we ensure proper and timely care? And then usually they finish up with, you know, if you had to give us some suggestions as to how to improve concussion care in Canada, what would those suggestions be? To date, the committee has heard from parents, young athletes with concussions, sporting organizations, both Rugby Canada and Hockey Canada have addressed the committee. Um, Former professional athletes, Ken Dryden has addressed the committee. He was actually the very first speaker. Uh, I think he did a really good job of that too. Eric Lindros also addressed the committee as well as Chris Nowinski uh, from Concussion Legacy Foundation. He was also a former WWE, uh, WWE wrestler and college football player. They've heard from researchers, clinicians, and then on Tuesday, they got to hear from me. Um, we will put a full link to that in our show notes uh, so you guys can watch that if you want to see that full meeting. There's also all the previous meetings. So if you guys are interested and you want to see all the previous uh, meetings that, that have taken place, uh, they've been taking place basically every Wednesday since November uh, for a couple hours uh, in the evening. So obviously we've been watching these, these meetings extremely closely because this is kind of what we do. Our mission for the past five years has been to try and solve this problem in Canada. Uh, and so we've been watching all the recommendations that have come out and, um, and kind of this is our synopsis of that. So we wanted to provide you guys with a brief overview of kind of what is going on with the concussion landscape. And the thing is, for those of you that may not be Canadian and are watching this, uh, it's the same everywhere. So you guys are probably going through the same challenges uh, in your country. And so uh, I'm sure that some of these recommendations that we're going to provide will um, make a lot of sense for you uh, as well in, in, in the United States or maybe Australia or the UK or wherever you may happen to be. Uh, okay, so, so far from the patients and parents perspective, the things that we've heard come up as common themes is 
they've frequently gone through misdiagnosis. So they've gone into the hospital. Doctor A has told them, no, you don't have a concussion. Doctor B then, who maybe is their family doctor, says, yes, you do have a concussion for sure. You know, then they, they end up back in the hospital and Doctor C says, you know, no, you don't have a concussion, it's something else. And they end up going around this process of misdiagnosis. And they also get conflicting advice from various medical professionals. And so we're not providing our patients with consistent advice. So depending on who you talk to, you're going to get completely different advice for how to manage your symptoms. This is a big problem because if you do the wrong thing, you end up kind of behind the eight ball and put into a scenario where you can't get better because you've been given the wrong advice. So um, one commonality that also came out of this was patients went through the same, I went to this doctor and this doctor and this neurologist and this neurologist and this specialist and this specialist, and it wasn't until they found either a chiropractor or a physiotherapist that they actually had a relief of their symptoms. So that's interesting, but it also makes sense because all of the research now that's coming out looking at concussions has found that rehabilitation is the best thing you can do for these people, whether it be exercise therapy, vestibular therapy, visual therapy, uh, treatment of the neck, education and reassurance. Um, a lot of this stuff can be delivered by rehab professionals and so oftentimes the best place to go when you have a concussion is to a rehab professional that has additional training in this area. So that was kind of from the patients and parents. So frustrations with the medical system, not getting consistent advice, and eventually finding care in kind of allied healthcare professionals. Uh, then we heard from former athletes. Uh, most of them have been talking about rule, tra rule changes. So two of them came from the hockey world and obviously Canada is a big hockey place. And so uh, the first person we heard from was Ken, Ken Dryden. He, he spoke, um, he had a, about a 10 minute opening statement that just talked about how hockey has evolved since its early days. Back in the day, hockey used to be played with, you know, an Indian rubber ball on a field, and eventually it's now morphed into what it what you see today. And so his point in all of this was, why can't we evolve it even further? Why do we have to have contact in hockey? Why do we have to have fighting in hockey? It's a great game, even if you were to remove that. And if we can remove contact from hockey and change some of these rules, we can have a significant reduction in our concussion problem. Eric Lindros, he kind of came at it from the same sentiment, uh, talking about you know amateur hockey. There's no reason why you have to be having full contact hockey you know, when you're 13, 14 years old, you know, you can learn contact later in life and still do quite well. Uh, and so that's kind of what his whole thing was, is let's let's get rid of, you know, contact and stuff in the early in the earlier ages, which I agree with. Chris Nowinski, he comes from the Concussion Legacy Foundation, as I said, former uh, football player, now turned PhD researcher, and he's involved in uh, Boston University at the NFL Brain Bank. Uh, I guess it's more of a brain bank for all types of brains now because they get a lot of military and stuff in there now. But his big thing, his big research focus is on CTE, and there's a big push right now going on with Concussion Legacy Foundation in trying to... Uh, especially in a sport of football, is reduce contact for those under the age of 14 and try to um, go more for flag football in those that are 14 or under. And he kind of came at it with a very common sense approach, which the committee seemed to really like. And um, he, he asked them, you know, how many of us play recreational sports, whether it be hockey or soccer or anything else, right? And we're not playing as adults. We're not going out and playing our recreational sports as full contact sports. You know, and because we know that we don't want to get hit, we don't want to get hurt, so then why are we going to force our young people to go out and play contact sports 
uh, and potentially put themselves at risk for uh, for getting hit. Um, do we have a glitch over here, Joe? We're all good? All right. Joe's breaking stuff in here. Okay. So prevention, we agree with this 100%. Some of the research out of the University of Calgary, they've been kind of the pioneers in this. And I was fortunate enough to sit beside Catherine Schneider as she gave her statement. Um, a lot of their research has been on prevention, and it's actually been on exactly this topic. Removing body contact in peewee hockey resulted in a 60% decrease in concussions. So obviously this is a very, very good idea. Now there was a slight increase in concussions in Bantam, which is the next age group up, group up. So the argument can be made that, well, if you just delay it, you're just delaying the problem. But the issue is that there is research now in young kids showing that the earlier you get a concussion, the worse it is for you. So the big thing that we want to try and prevent, if we can prevent any concussions, we want to prevent them in younger, younger ages, right? If you're eight, it's probably worse that you get a concussion than if you were 10. And it's probably worse if you're 10 than if you were 12 and so on and so on. And so the, the later we can delay you know, the first concussions, that's better. That's beneficial for us. It's beneficial for our population because the earlier kids get a concussion, it's more likely to set them up for longer term issues. Some of those issues being learning disabilities, um, cognitive problems, um, behavioral disorders later in life and that type of thing. So. Prevention, I think, is huge. We agree with this 100%. I don't know what the age is, but we got to start somewhere. Uh, I'll say, let's say, get on board with Concussion Legacy Foundation and put it at 14 years old to start. It may be 16, it may be 18, it may be 12. We don't know, but we got to start somewhere. And let's not try to get bogged down with what the age is. Let's just do something. Okay, some members of the committee also seem to be very big on equipment, um, even though many witnesses have told them flat out that you know equipment really doesn't do anything to prevent concussions because it's the brain moving inside the skull. So you can wrap the head in whatever you want, but the brain's still gonna be moving inside that skull. And so mouth guards, um, research is very mixed, helmets uh, even more so and there's really no um, significant reduction in concussion with any type of protective equipment so far. That's just where the evidence stands, okay? Even if you do this, even if you look at prevention and eliminating contact, you're still gonna have concussions occur. So then the question becomes, what do you do about it when the concussions do occur? Because no matter what you do, even in a non-contact sport, like take soccer for example, soccer has one of the highest concussion rates. Why? Because you put a bunch of kids on a field running around chasing the same object, eventually they're gonna run into each other. And people will look at that and say, well they should get rid of heading in soccer. That is just scratching the surface. Less than 6% of concussions in soccer come from heading the ball. So who cares? Get rid of heading. 75, I think it's, Wait, wait, 77% of concussions in soccer come from player-to-player -player contact. So it's not the ball, it's not the heading, it's players running around that eventually just run into each other. If you look at women's hockey versus men's hockey, women's hockey is non-contact. In the CIS, which is Canadian Inter-University Sport, which is all the university uh, athletics, um, that's the league. So in CIS men's hockey versus CIS women's hockey, for those in the US, it's kind of our equivalent NCAA. A um, little smaller, but same kind of idea. So women's hockey, non-contact, men's hockey, full contact. Women's hockey actually has more concussions than the men's, and it's non-contact. Well, that could be due to a variety of factors. Some people believe that women may be more susceptible to concussions. Other believe, others believe that women may be just more likely to report 
that they've had a concussion. But regardless, even in non-contact, you put a bunch of people chasing the same object, eventually people are going to run into one another. So the only real solution is to avoid everything which could potentially harm you, and we're not suggesting that. But we can reduce the number by reducing the contact, but even if we reduce the number, the concussions are still going to happen, and what do we do about the injuries when they happen? Okay. Scientific evidence shows that one of the most important things to do is to remove an athlete immediately from play after getting their concussion because this does two things. One, it prevents them from getting hit again because we know that after one concussion, the second one happens easier during that recovery period. And so if you got hit that same game, removing that person is protective. It prevents them from getting hit again. It also does another thing where research has shown that by reducing body temperature, it reduces the amount of glutamate released. And so glutamate is an excitotoxic chemical that's released after concussion injury. And that actually kind of correlates with the severity of the injury and the, the length of symptoms and the oxidative damage that occurs. If you can remove a person and that automatically will lower their body temperature um, and reduce the amount of glutamate release. Those athletes that were removed earlier from sport had a significant reduction in the length of recovery versus those that continued to play. Now this could have been because they were getting hit after the fact or because they had a reduction in the amount of glutamate released. Either way, we should be removing them from play. Next, the research shows that the earlier you can get in to see a trained healthcare professional, the better. The big key point is not what type of healthcare professional they are. It doesn't matter if it's a doctor, an AT, a physio, an OT, uh, whoever it may be. It doesn't matter, provided they have extensive knowledge and training on concussion. That's really the key because a lot of this stuff, we know that people with anxiety and we know that people who have poor coping skills tend to have a prolonged recovery. And now with the media hype, the amount of attention that's paid to this, when an athlete gets an injury or anybody gets a concussion injury, they get really worried about it because the media is covering this as almost like it's a permanency. If you get a concussion, you're screwed forever. And that's actually not the case. Somebody calling me? I'll be home soon. Don't call me. <laughs> and so... The media has brought this on to be this permanent type of thing, and it's not. And so seeing somebody who can kind of ease your mind and provide you with that education, this is why education and reassurance is one of the best things, one of the best treatments for concussion in the early phases, right? Because there's certain things that have to be done. What can I do? Can I sleep? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I not do that? Should I avoid this? Can I? It's all these questions need to be answered. And if you're seeing somebody, I don't care if they're an MD, uh, orthopedic surgeon or a neurologist, if they don't know anything about concussion, the advice they're gonna give you is gonna be terrible and you're not gonna recover well. So the evidence shows that seeing an educated, trained healthcare professional, regardless of the type, can significantly reduce um, the recovery timeline and is one of the best ways to prevent prolonged symptoms, okay? So we gotta pull them out of the game and we also gotta get them in to see somebody as soon as possible that can provide them with the right education so they get the right start in recovery. Okay? So where do you go? How do you find this care? Most people assume that when you get a concussion you should be going right to the hospital. Okay? That is the case if you're concerned that it's something more than a concussion. If a person gets knocked unconscious and they're not waking up or any of this type, that's hospital based. Okay? Now, studies in Canada, 2016, found that almost half 
of emergency room doctors were not aware that any concussion guidelines even existed. This was in 2016. The first concussion consensus statement was published in 2001. So 15 years after the publication of the first international consensus statement, more than half or almost half of Canadian doctors did not know that there was any guidelines on concussion. So what kind of advice do you think these ER docs are providing to concussed patients? Probably not the best advice, but that's not their job. Their job as ER docs is to find out, is this patient gonna die? As soon as I know that this patient is not gonna die, I'm gonna send them home. And now they have to follow with their family doctor, okay? So you think that that is wild, but it actually makes sense. 2012, study done looking at Canadian medical schools and the level of education on concussion that was in the curriculum. Many Canadian medical schools did not have concussion on the curriculum at all. So that means that in some Canadian medical schools, physicians graduating have never learned about concussion. The average was 30 minutes over the entire four years of medical school across all Canadian medical schools. The average amount of education was 30 minutes. This year, while well in 2018, there was a follow-up study to that. They found that it's improved. So now the level of education in Canadian medical schools is two and a half hours through all of medical school. Still, it's an improvement, but it's still not even close to the amount of education you would need to handle this properly. For example, our, our course at, at, at Complete Concussion Management is 36 hours long. Plus, we require each of our practitioners to undergo a 15-hour recertification course every two years in order to retain their certification because that's how much things are changing. That's how big this field is. So having two and a half hours in medical school and then not revisiting it very often is going to create problems, okay? So the reality is that many physicians have never learned about concussions. Dr. Zemek in 2014 did a study that found that only 37%, much less than half, only 37% of primary care physicians that were surveyed were able to correctly apply the graduated return to play guidelines. Okay? So, the issue is not just necessarily a lack of education in our medical professionals, but it's also now getting into knowledge translation. When research happens, the average that it takes is about 10 years to make it into clinical practice. So, in this ER doc study, we find that 15 years after the first consensus statement, half of ER docs didn't even know that a consensus statement existed at all. So what kind of rules and recommendations are they providing, okay? So many of the researchers and clinicians that presented to the panel spoke about the need to educate physicians in Canada. And yes, we agree with that. However, if we just take the approach of we need to educate the physicians in Canada to provide better concussion care, I still don't think that's going to be enough to improve our situation. And here's why. Okay, physicians in Canada and probably in other parts of the world, particularly when you have universal health care, they are overworked and underpaid. Many physicians book appointments that are 5 to 15 minutes long, so you get a very short time window, whereas the average concussion assessment and clinical follow-up visit takes between 30 and 60 minutes. The average wait time to see a physician in Ontario is 18 days, according to data from the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation, 250 days if you wanted to see a neurologist. That's way too long for an injury where the symptoms might be gone within 7 to 10 days. If you're waiting that long to even get in, that's tough. 
okay? Second reason, there's other things that need to be done when a concussion occurs. Things like treadmill tests, uh, comprehensive baseline tests, retesting, all that stuff for return to play decisions. All this stuff is time consuming. My final clearance visit with an athlete is about an hour and a half long, depending on what I have to do uh, with that athlete. But the first thing we do is we start with the physical exertion test, the Blackhawks test. Uh, that takes about half an hour. Then we have to rerun them through all of their baseline metrics. So we're testing their balance, their reaction time, their vision, their concentration, their their memory, like you know, reaction time, all of these things to try and see, okay, does everything line up here? Then if they pass that, then we run them through their impact test, which is their neurocognitive battery. And that takes another half hour. So you're talking about an hour and a half here. Most physicians are not going to have the time. Most physicians don't have treadmill tests in their office. They don't have treadmills. They don't have exercise bikes. They don't have the space to be able to run a physical exertion test. So I think we need to bring other professionals into the table. Physicians that know that this needs to occur are now just referring to our clinics. And this is kind of the role that we fill. We're almost like a service for physicians' offices. So if a patient comes in that has a concussion, physicians can easily send them over to us. We do all the stuff, the treadmill tests and everything else. And then we can either work with that physician to clear that athlete, or we can send it back to the physician with a little bit more information to be able to make that decision a little bit better. The third reason why I don't think this is going to work unilaterally and why there needs to be a more collaborative approach is rehabilitation. The treatment for concussion is rehab. It's exercise, it's vestibular, it's visual, it's neck. It's education, it's reassurance. This stuff requires certain skills. You have to be able to assess the vestibular system and the visual system and, the, and, and put them on a treadmill and have them exercise. And this rehab is best when initiated within the first 10 to 14 days after injury. Some research now is showing that exercise should even be initiated earlier than that, suggesting that even as early as a couple days after injury, it might actually improve outcomes. So if it's 18 days to get in to see your doctor and then your doctor has to refer you to us, you're now there by maybe 20 days or longer, you're already behind the eight ball. You've already put yourself in a situation where it's going to be a whole lot harder to get out of. And if we could bypass that, right, and here's our solution, and this is what we noticed years ago when we were setting up this program, it was, okay, we're researchers, we have the education, Here's the things that need to be done for an optimal concussion program. We need to be doing treadmill tests. We need to be doing vestibular and visual and all this stuff. And we need to be doing this early. And the rehab is the best approach. And we need to have more objective return to play measures and all this stuff. And so what we were going to do, we're going to go out and train physicians on how to do this. It's never going to work. They don't have enough time. They don't have the space. They don't have the equipment. It's outside of their kind of purview of what they usually do. So we went about it differently. The rehab clinics, the sports medicine clinics, the physios, the chiros, the ATs, these are the people that have treadmills. These are the people that know vestibular and visual problems. These are the people that can treat necks. And they have the time to be able to dedicate to doing a proper assessment and all the other things that need to go along with it. So physiotherapists and chiropractors are licensed healthcare professionals. They have the scope of practice in Canada to diagnose concussions and to be able to make clearance decisions for those injuries. So it just makes sense. They have the time available to provide the proper assessment, rule out any red flags that might be present. They have the time to sit with the patient and explain what's gonna happen and what the proper guidance is uh, to be able to get back to sports. So which page am I on? All of this leads to optimizing recovery for patients, right? Doing everything we can to make sure that patients are recovering the best way possible. So now, 
CCMI has 300 clinics in the world. 250 of those are in Canada. 60% of our clinicians are physiotherapists. 30% of our clinicians are chiropractors. 10% are medical doctors. We feel that rehab is so important to a concussion program that if an MD calls us and they don't have physios or chiros in their clinic, we won't even certify them as a clinic because that rehab component is missing. And so that's, that's how important this is to proper concussion management. And I just want to make sure that point comes across. We are now the largest provider of concussion care in Canada. We work with hundreds of local, provincial, national sporting bodies, and we are the concussion providers for probably more than 50,000 athletes in Canada. We see more concussions each year than all of the pediatric emergency departments combined in this country. Um, all of our care is covered by secondary health insurance, and so that means that it saves our provincial publicly funded healthcare systems this year more than $30 million. So there's a huge cost savings to this as well by utilizing allied healthcare professionals who have the training, who have the license scope of practice to see these injuries. And what that also does is it frees up physicians to be able to deal with more pressing issues that's more within their purview, with more dealing with more serious concerns than concussion. A concussion is not serious unless there's red flag issues. After that, it's just providing proper guidance, proper rehabilitation, and making sure that we're um, paying attention to some of the other stuff that might occur, right? Now, I'm not saying that physicians aren't part of the picture because they are. I work closely with them. We refer back and forth all the time. I'm saying that it doesn't necessarily need to be them as the first line of defense, right? Physios and chiros can do this too, and I think it'll eliminate a big backlog in our emergency departments and family physicians' offices. So in my opinion, it's a win-win. Patients get accessible and appropriate care from a trained healthcare professional, which is covered under their insurance. So it's free because their sporting bodies will have insurance on them. Um, plus they're in the right spot to get appropriate treadmill testing and return to play testing. And it saves our healthcare system millions of dollars, improves access to physicians for other ailments which might come in. Um, and there we go. So obviously our model has worked very well. Uh, we have a 97% patient satisfaction rating coming into our clinics. Um, we have a net promoter score, which those who don't know what a net promoter score is, maybe I'll get Sam over here to explain what a net promoter score is. But what a net promoter score is, is basically taking everyone who strongly recommends your services and comparing that to everyone who strongly does not recommend your services. And it gives you a score from either negative 100, where everyone hates you, to positive 100, where everyone loves you so much and nobody hates you. Our score is 91, which is considered world class. That is a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Airbnb, and Netflix. Okay, So we're obviously doing something good. Patients are liking us. That's a good thing, okay? There's one major problem to all of this. A few years ago, a group called Parachute Canada released the Canadian Concussion Guidelines. The government provided them with $2 million to set up um, guidelines to try and harmonize concussion care in Canada, which is an excellent, excellent idea. Um, the committee that was formed by Parachute Canada was 83% physicians. So they took the International Consensus Statement Guidelines, which are endorsed by everyone pretty much globally uh, as being the leaders in concussion care and they basically reformatted those and they had two major changes to those guidelines from the international cons consensus statement. The international consensus statement says that concussion should be diagnosed and managed by a licensed healthcare professional with training and experience in concussion management. 
in the Parachute Canada guidelines, the only guidelines in the world to say this, by the way, they made a statement that said only medical doctors and nurse practitioners are qualified to conduct a comprehensive medical assessment and provide concussion diagnosis in Canada. And then they've now passed this out to every sports group in Canada. So now we're getting questions as to, wait a minute, these are physios and chiros. They're not allowed to do this. But that's actually not true. That statement is actually false. Scope of practice, like it is everywhere, it's set by your provincial or your state regulatory bodies. So, for example, as a chiropractor in Ontario, I'm licensed by the College of Chiropractors of Ontario. They're the ones who set my scope of practice. Here is a statement from the Ontario Chiropractic Association in response to the Rowan's Law Committee, which also suggested that concussions only be diagnosed by physicians. Here's a statement on assessment and diagnosis of concussions. According to the College of Chiropractors of Ontario, while acting within the chiropractic scope of practice, chiropractors can be involved in the assessment, diagnosis, and management of concussions. So there's that. Then, Sport Physiotherapy Canada, as well as the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, issued this in response to the parachute guidelines. Physiotherapy is a valued member of the interprofessional team that assesses, diagnoses, and manages concussions in Canada. So obviously, the chiros and the physios have expressed that they are permitted to do this and that the statement issued by Parachute is actually false. Uh, this past month, the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative came out with their concussion guidelines. And in the diagnosis section, here's what their, their point was. Chiropractors have the competency to diagnose and manage patients with concussion through providing a comprehensive assessment, ruling out serious pathology, providing patient education and reassurance, treating the symptoms associated with concussion, and referring to the appropriate healthcare professional for acts that fall outside of their respective scope of practice. So, chiropractors can do this, physiotherapies can do this, they can diagnose, they can clear, they can manage unilaterally. Okay, so the parachute statement is incorrect saying that only physicians can do this. The U.S. has already learned this. In 2012, every state had legislation about concussions. In 2012, 50% of the states that were out there had their legislation say that physicians must be the diagnosis and must be the clearance decision. Now, there's only six states remaining in the U.S. that require to be physician. The rest of them have opened it up. Hawaii and Oregon, just this past year, have opened it up now to allow physios and chiros to be able to diagnose and, and manage concussions unilaterally. So Canada's kind of taking a step backwards when the rest of the world is kind of moving forwards in towards inclusivity and everything else. Um, secondly, Parachute made a separate statement about baseline testing, um, suggesting that sports clubs not take part in it and it's not recommended. Again, they are the only group in the world which has taken a negative lean towards baseline testing. Now, if you're not recommending that athletes participate in baseline testing, you're generally or basically suggesting that we continue to manage concussions based on self-reported symptoms. We know that self-reported symptoms are an inaccurate determination of brain um, dysfunction, brain recovery, and yet that's the only thing we have to go on if we're not suggesting that people have any objectivity to um, their recovery. So we all get regular baselines all the time on various things from our health. Um, my doctor would do yearly physicals on me. She would take measurements of the moles on my body. She would take blood tests and she would compare them to my previous year's blood tests and say, no, that's normal. That's normal. Good. Oh, this mole hasn't grown. It's the same size. That's good. If she hadn't measured it the year before, which is basically a baseline, 
to be able to compare the subtle changes that may happen over time, you don't know what you're looking at. Is that new? Is that old? Is that grown? Is it the same? What's the deal? And it's the same thing with concussions. Okay, someone I know very closely recently had a heart attack. The only way that the doctors figured out that she was having a heart attack is they were doing um, they were doing some EMGs on her EEGs or um, uh, EKG, sorry, and they found subtle blip in the EKG. But the only reason they found that subtle blip is because they had an EKG on her from the previous year that didn't have that blip they had passed it over until they saw her previous one. So this is where this stuff becomes important because if I'm looking for subtleties in how an athlete functions in their balance and their reaction time and their memory and their concentration and everything else, the range of normal is too wide for me to say that someone is normal because that might not be normal for them. The best thing I can do is know what they were before their injury and try to use that to compare. Now, there's some problems with this, okay? So the evidence on this shows that any one test by itself is not sufficient for detecting concussion because single tests, there's reliability issues, right? So if I'm only gonna do a computer test, I it, the reliability of that is gonna be up and down um, and, and we know that the test retest reliability is questionable. If I'm only gonna do a reaction time test, the test retest reliability is gonna be questionable. But statement from um, Broglio, and this is the largest study ever done looking at baselines and how they worked, he said, Ultimately, none of these measures individually meet the reliability standards that are set for clinical utility. There is, however, evidence that combining them in a multifaceted assessment model provides a high level of sensitivity by comparing baseline performance to post-concussion changes in cognitive functioning. So any one test by itself is not a baseline. That's crap, it's a waste of time, don't do it. And I agree with the parachute statement in that respect. However, if you're going to do a multifaceted battery and the professional that's doing that battery understands those tests, understands the limitations of those tests, understands how they kind of work together and interact, then it can be a very, very helpful tool. And the rest of the world, and I'm going to read it out right now, um, at the recent International Ice Hockey Summit, 155 experts put forth their top six recommendations for reducing concussion risk in hockey. Mandatory annual baseline testing for athletes of all levels was among the top recommendations. In fact, annual multimodal baseline testing is either recommended or said to be helpful in the management of concussion by several groups, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Athletic Trainers Association, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, the International Consensus Statement on Concussion in Sport, the American Sport Neuropsychology Association, the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation Pediatric Guidelines, the NCAA Best Practices Guidelines for Concussion Management, the Australian Institute of Sport Concussion Guidelines, and Holland Blue Review Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. And that's just a start. But those are guidelines from all over the world. The only guidelines right now that suggest that we shouldn't be doing this are the Parachute Canada Guidelines. So I think there's an issue there. Okay, so our recommendations to the committee. Number one, the parachute statement is false and it needs to be changed. It inaccurately reflects the qualifications and scope of practice of allied healthcare professionals in Canada uh, and seeks to actively discourage Canadian sports clubs from utilizing these excellent resources as part of their concussion management strategies. These professionals are legally allowed to make a diagnosis, legally allowed to manage cases, and are often the best positioned to do so because they have the equipment, the time, 
And now the skills and training and knowledge after taking a 36 hour course to be able to do this very effectively and use evidence-based tactics and the guideline is false, it needs to be changed. Number two, we should not be discouraging parents and sports clubs for participating in baseline testing, considering the rest of the world says it might be a helpful tool when done appropriately. Okay, number three, we should eliminate contact in younger athletes. Maybe we put the age at 14 to start. It might be 16, 18. We don't know what the actual age is where it's safe to get a concussion. It might never be safe to get a concussion, but at least eliminating it for our younger children uh, is the best way to start this process. I'm on the last page, guys. Number four, we should examine technologies that exist already. There's a ton of technologies out there that already look at data tracking and things like that. For example, our concussion app, um, we're re-releasing we're re it uh, in a few weeks and it's completely free for everyone. It allows a sports club to track injuries, concussions, and it also communicates with all the other sports that an athlete plays. So if an athlete gets concussed playing hockey, it notifies the football coach and the soccer coach too. So now everyone knows what's going on and nothing kind of falls through the cracks. This technology is free. Okay? We should be looking to see what else is out there already and see how we can leverage that and combine things to make a good program. Number five, we should continue to invest in research. Canada has some of the top concussion research programs in the world, and we need to continue to learn and understand concussions in order to be able to continue with these issues. Okay, um, the full meeting is available online. Uh, the, all the films are there. You can watch my session. We'll put it in a link in the show notes. Um, and you can also watch all the previous ones. Now in my session, I, we were cut off short. They had to go and do a vote. I mean, this stuff happens, but I was able to submit a letter uh, that kind of has our recommendations included within that within that letter. So I was able at least to get this stuff across to the government. We'll see what happens. So anyway, the committee is continuing to meet each Wednesday. If you guys are paying attention, it's the subcommittee on concussion and, or sports-related concussion in Canada. Um, and after I think the summer they said they would, after they had everything, they would put it all into a report and provide kind of their overall recommendations for, you know, improving concussion care in this country. So stay tuned for that. Sorry, very Canada heavy, but like I said, I think it, it, it fits with everyone else because I think that the U.S. probably has very similar problems. I think Australia probably has very similar problems, uh, U.K. as well. So uh, everywhere, right? So I don't think this is universal to Canada. Um, but anyway, thanks for listening. Those that are on live right now on, on Instagram, uh, if you want to flip over to Concussion Doc, if you have any questions, so it's at concussion underscore doc. I'll take questions on that platform. Uh, for everyone listening on podcast, we'll be back next week. If you want to join us live, we usually do this Wednesday. I know it's a Friday. Um, but we had a, another snowstorm in Toronto, so we just didn't come together until today. Um, anyway, thank you everyone for watching, and uh, we'll see you guys next week, and I'll, an I'll answer questions on Concussion Doc now. Shut her down. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.